History, economics, the great works of literature, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution. Did you study these things in school? Probably not. Or even if you did, like I did, maybe it's time for a refresher. Time and technology have changed a lot of things, but they have not changed basic fundamental truths about the world and our place in it as America. That's why I'm so excited that Hillsdale College is offering more than 40 free online courses in the most important and enduring subject. You can learn about the works of C.S. Lewis, the stories in the book of Genesis, the meaning of the U.S. Constitution, the rise and fall of the Roman Republic, or the history of the ancient Christian church with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, you heard me, for free. You don't get anything free in the Biden economy today. I personally recommend you sign up for the American Citizenship and its Decline. It's with my good friend, the great historian, Victor Davis Hanson. In this eight-lecture course, VDH, as I like to call him, explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. The course is self-paced so that you can start whenever and wherever. So start your free course, American Citizenship and Its Decline, with my good friend, Victor Davis Hanson, today. How do you do that? Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash justnews to start. It's free and it's easy to get started and it's an easy URL to remember. All you got to do, go to hillsdale.edu slash justnews. One more time, hillsdale.edu slash justnews. Hello, America, and welcome to a special edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where today we're going to spend the entire afternoon talking to three reporters from Just the News who have broken very consequential stories. Yep, about the election, about China, about future Joe Biden appointees, if Joe Biden were to be elected president. All three are exclusive, very well-documented stories. You don't have to take our word for it. All of the information is sitting in the Dig In uh, tab on each story. So you can see the documents, the audio, the video, uh, the announcements, all the things that brought to life and uh, validate these stories that our three great reporters have done. Those reporters are Christine Dolan, uh, Daniel Payne, and Seamus Bruner, who you might remember also co-wrote my book with me, uh, Fallout. Uh, nuclear bribes, Russian spies, and the Washington lies that enriched the Clinton and Biden dynasties. Uh, very important stories. We're going to bring each one of them on to talk about them. Just real quickly, I'll just lay out the stories. First up, uh, we'll have my good friend Seamus Bruner. He and I have a story out today that shows that back in 2015, Hunter Biden, through one of his Chinese-connected uh, investment funds, helped buy an American uh, auto parts ma- maker called Hennigas in Michigan and transferred its ownership to a Chinese military aircraft maker uh, called AVIC. And AVIC has a long history of sanctions from the United States. It's just even as recently as uh, June was highlighted again by the Pentagon in a list of companies that are helping the PLA Army. We look into, and, and I believe Seamus will talk greatly about uh, what uh, factors were available when the Obama administration approved this deal, allowed Hunter Biden to transfer ownership of this company to China, facilitate the transfer. Uh, what the CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, should have known before they approved the uh, uh, transaction, and uh, what 
uh, things have happened since then in terms of expansion of the company. Guess what? Not in Michigan, but overseas. So that'll be the first story up. Second up, uh, my good friend and colleague Daniel Payne has an exclusive State Department document showing that in 2018, uh, as the U.S. government was funding coronavirus research in, yes, Wuhan, China, where the ultimate COVID-19 virus uh, came from, uh, there were concerns raised by the State Department uh, office in Wuhan that the Wuhan Institute, the scientific lab, the the level four uh, pathogen lab in Wuhan, China, didn't have enough staff and enough security and safety procedures that there was concern at the State Department about the capabilities of this lab. Not the research. The research is important. Now, there's no suggestion that this uh, work resulted in the release of the virus. But what it does uh, highlight is the fact that the U.S. continued to proceed with, you know, important but potentially risky virus uh, research without uh, heeding the warnings of the State Department or addressing the concerns that the State Department had about the capabilities and manpower of this Wuhan Institute. So that's story two. Story three comes from my colleague Christine Dolan. We teamed up yesterday to tell the story of one of the very last cases that the former U.S. attorney for Manhattan, Preet Bahara, an Obama appointee, somebody who is likely to be considered for the cabinet in a Joe Biden administration. Uh, well, this case, which involved insider trading involving a famous Las Vegas gambler named Billy Walters, was rife with FBI leaks, with ethical and other issues going on. And yes, the Preet Bahara originally, his office denied there were problems, even though they knew there was. They then confessed to the court. And now four years later, guess what? I know this is going to sound familiar after the Russia case. No one, I repeat, no one has been punished. Christine Dolan's here to talk about that. Three big stories on Just the News, the type of exclusive reporting I think you've come to expect from us. Uh, we're going to bring on the reporters so you can hear from them firsthand. They can answer your questions and uh, give you some more detail on these very important stories. But first, another important mission. We're going to go to a quick commercial break to hear from our great advertisers, our great sponsors, the people who make this show possible. When we come back, first up, none other than Seamus Bruner talking about the Hennages, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, transfer of ownership to China right after this commercial break. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, my great colleague, Seamus Bruner, who works with uh, Peter Schweitzer at the 
Government Accountability Institute is one of the best investigative journalists in town. My my co-author with me on the book Fallout. I'm glad to welcome him back to the show. Seamus, thanks for joining us. It's a, yes, it's a pleasure to be with you, John. Thank you. Well, uh, once again, I've enjoyed another collaboration with you. You, We've got a great story out today, the, the untold story, or mostly untold story, of the efforts by Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, to use an investment firm, he and uh, Secretary of State John Kerry's uh, stepson, Chris Hines, had created to buy an American uh, auto parts manufacturer in Michigan, key state of Michigan, Hennigas, and transfer it to a Chinese military aircraft maker known as AVIC. Tell us uh, what, what struck you with this story as we were reporting it. What did you learn and what's most important for the uh, American voter, American uh, citizen to take away from this? Yeah, so this this is a, just another shocking story of Biden's self-enrichment and uh, especially bad at the hands of the Chinese. Uh, this brings in an entity that your uh, you know very intelligent followers may have heard of, the CFIUS Committee. Um, this was this was big in the Uranium One deal. It's where the uh, Obama administration right. top cabinet officials signed off on a deal that Hunter Biden was uh, a 49% stakeholder in this purchase. And the other 51% was the, like you said, the Chinese military contractor AVIC. So this parts manufacturer in Michigan, Hennigas, it, it manufactures a lot, a lot of things for cars, rubber seals that go around the windshield and stuff like that. But it also has a business line of sensitive dual use is what the term is, dual use technology, where it has civilian uh, applications, but also military applications. So that could be something like the rubber around your windshield also keeps the windshields and fighter jets uh, from blowing out. So Hennigas makes these sensitive products that are beneficial to uh, military contractors. Hunter Biden gets involved with the Chinese through his uh, investment fund, Bohai Harvest, Bohai gets 49% of the deal. The Chinese military contractor gets 51%. And the Obama administration signs off on it. it just It reeks of conflict of interest. And like you said, John Kerry's stepson is involved in investment deals with Hunter Biden. Um, so, that, you know, this is just another, another shocking example added to the list of Biden's self-enrichment. Yeah, it really is striking. And and hats off first to Peter Schweitzer, who first discovered this in, in his books. And, and hats off to you for digging deeper and finding all of the different elements here that, that make this transaction concerning. And I want to get to the fact that by the time this transaction occurs in 2015, there's a significant body of evidence of AVIC's past wrongdoing, uh, at least according to the U.S. government. But, but let me let's create the timetable for people, because this has a lot of elements that you may have heard fragments of uh, in the various books by Peter Schweitzer and in the various campaign commercials. But uh, let's go back to December 2013. Hunter Biden goes on a Air Force Two jet with his father to an official trip to China. And in a lobby of a hotel, he meets a Chinese uh, businessman and they talk about creating an investment fund that becomes Bohai Harvest, right? BHR, is that correct? Yep. Yep. Uh, Bohai Bo Harvest RST is uh, the Rosemont Seneca was a, a previous uh, iteration of Biden investment funds, but that's correct. So December 2013, he flies with uh, his father on Air Force Two. And just 10 days after that trip, the China, China state owned 
banks partner with the uh, these uh, Biden and Kerry sons to to capitalize this fund. And one by one year later, it's December 2014 that Bohai Harvest uh, starts investing in big Chinese companies. Um, one of them, actually, we mentioned it in the piece, is the the nuclear China General Nuclear Corp. That's by December 2014. Um, and, and it's interesting, you know, savvy, savvy, savvy listeners will realize that this is right at the same time that Hunter Biden's in Ukraine. So, I mean, they're, they're uh, cashing in in China and Ukraine right at the same time. Yeah, the, the time frames are amazing. So you got December, they have the meeting and they create the fund. By the right. summer of 2014, Hunter Biden is building out this fund uh, with this Chinese businessman. The Bank of China, which is a state owned bank, is involved in, in financing uh, Hunter Biden lands the job in between these two points in April of 2014. He added to the board of the corrupt Ukrainian company Burisma. By 2015, right. BH, uh, BHR, this uh, investment fund that uh, Hunter Biden and Chris Hines uh, and the Chinese businessmen are part of, uh, is big enough that it engages in a transaction to buy uh, Hennig's Automotive, which is one of the larger, more famous automotive parts companies in Michigan. And uh, they proceed with the deal. And you mentioned CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which ultimately concluded they saw no national security reason to block the transaction. Now, you and I did some digging and, and looked at AVIC. And what did the United States government know about AVIC before they approved this transaction, were there any red flags about a Chinese military aircraft uh, maker that you know would make the United States suspicious? And let's start with the most recent thing: just uh, 15 months before CFIUS approves the uh, Henningas deal, allowing Hunter Biden and the Chinese company Avic to buy this, the U.S. government took an action. Describe what they did to Avic in in uh, the summer of 2014. Right. So so the uh, Department of Commerce and, and I mean, probably in consultation with the Department of Defense, but the Department of Commerce maintains this list. They call it the entity list. And it's basically a precursor to sanctions. When you get put on this list, it means you are a major red flag entity, uh, you know, if foreign government influenced or owned. And in the case of AVIC, it is totally Chinese owned, state owned company with military applications. So getting added to the entity list is not a good place to be. And it certainly should have been just like the Uranium One deal, a major red flag to the CFIUS committee that, hey, hold up. Uh, maybe we don't want to allow one of our sensitive American companies to fall into the hands of a Chinese military contractor. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, uh, you know, Kerry State Department uh, and, and obviously the Obama presidency, um, his entire cabinet, there were several CFIUS deals. Uh, this is just one of several that are very, very controversial. Um, and, it, 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 you know, Ch Senator Chuck Grassley tried to get to the bottom of it, as he did with the Uranium One scandal. Treasury just doesn't want to open up on these kind of these sensitive deals. So they don't they don't give a whole lot of information. They don't I mean, they even say we we don't, we cannot confirm or deny that such a review took place. But we, we do know that it took place. And it was approved. So here we are sitting looking for answers for why the Obama administration would sell out to a Chinese military contractor. Now, the um, the 2014 edition uh, was an AVIC subsidiary. Before that, uh, you dug back and found that over the years, going all the way back to, I think, 1995 at least, 
there were five earlier instances in which Avic was sanctioned for uh, uh, improper proliferation of military gear to places like Iran and Pakistan. Uh, to, uh, so there was a history of this company being sanctioned by our U.S. government multiple times prior to the approval of this transaction, correct? That, no, exactly right. It's not one, not two, not three, but five times AVIC was added to sanctions lists. Uh, and like you said, it's for proliferation of, uh, of weapons, especially missile technology. This is while Iran has got their secret nuclear weapons program and also missile programs. And uh, you've got this Chinese uh, company helping the Iranians build missiles uh, and, and other you know, weapons of uh, terrible destruction uh, to America's greatest adversaries. So there, I mean, there was never a point where AVIC was, oh, let's, let's trust these guys. They've been working with our enemies for decades. The, um, now let's fast forward. So the transaction goes through, uh, Hennigis is still operating out of Michigan, but most of its expansion over the last few years has been overseas, not in America. It hasn't been creating big American jobs. It's been opening up place, plants in places like Mexico and China, correct? Exactly. Exactly right, John. It, uh, they opened uh, several plants in China. They've got six now, uh, possibly a seventh, but uh, on their website, they list six. Some news reports say seven, but uh, we know for certain that there are six plants in China. Uh, at the photos that on their website, when they're bragging about their uh, grand openings of new centers in Beijing and, and elsewhere, They've got Chinese government officials at the ribbon cutting ceremonies, and this is for Hennigan. So this is once a uh, an American company, uh, a respected American company around for for decades, um, now has got Chinese government officials celebrating their opening of new plants in China. They opened a new center, several new centers in Mexico. Uh, they opened a new headquarters in uh, Czech Republic. Um, so they are uh, now a citizen of the world uh, owned by China. The, um, the story is important for a lot of reasons. And, and uh, one, of the, one of them is when we go back to 2013, if you take a look at where Donald Trump, private citizen at that time, where Michael Pillsbury, uh, a uh, close China advisor, Peter Navarro, close China advisor to Trump, they're all warning from 2004, that China is not our friend. And Joe Biden was giving speeches in 2013, just before his son cashed in on this deal, saying that China is not a competitive threat, that the growth of China is would be good for the United States, not bad for the United States. So there's a very different viewpoint in 2013 between the Republicans who eventually take over in 2016 and uh, Joe Biden. Now, Joe Biden flip-flopped this year. And in March, wrote an essay saying, I was wrong about China. They do pose a threat and we got to start cracking down on them because they like to get our, their hands on our technology. When you look at that, what Joe Biden wrote, that sort of flip flop and really major flip flop in policy on China, uh, isn't his son's transaction here one of those transactions where his own family helped China get their hands on a dual use technology that we're supposed to be protecting in the United States? Uh, it's, no, it's exact. It's exactly right. It's, uh, I mean, one of just many flip flops coming from uh, former Vice President Biden, and uh, it just it rings completely hollow for exactly the reason you mentioned. His son was on the take, making deals with the state-owned Bank of China, meeting with Chinese government officials, using Air Force Two to conduct business deals, 
Uh, I don't know how anybody could take uh, Joe Biden seriously on his his new uh, position on China because there are so many just amazing clips. I mean, shocking. Like you just you can't can't believe how many clips there are of Joe Biden out there saying that you know a lot of people have heard that China are not bad folks, folks, but uh, you know they're going to eat our lunch. Come on, man. Uh, it's 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 shocking and. I, you know, it's hard, it's hard to know which Joe Biden to believe on any given day, but the money doesn't lie. And we know that the Biden family has taken in just untold sums from foreign governments and especially China. Well, you've done a great job all throughout working with Peter on some of the stuff you've done yourself, Seamus. And then this story today, I'm very proud to have been able to work with you and uh, really a great job, folks. If you haven't had a chance to go check this story out, go to justthenews.com right now and take a look. It's got lots of detail. Every document that Seamus and I found, whether it's the sanction documents or clips of uh, Biden talking or or CFIUS actions, all the documents are embedded in the story. You don't have to take our word for it. You can take a look at it in the dig in section of the story and uh, make up your own mind. But Seamus, I want to thank you for all the great investigative reporting you're doing. You're you're one of the few left in the country that that uh, cares about the truth and and does this sort of honest and, and transparent investigative reporting and. I know our readers were, were deeply benefited by by the great work you did on this story today. Oh, I'm flattered, John. Well, it's it's a real honor to work and learn from a, a real veteran and expert like you and, and Peter Schweitzer. So um, I'm happy to be where I am, and I, I thank you for the opportunity. And I'll just say uh, in the story, um, we're going to keep hammering this uh, because, you know, we allude to a couple other Biden Chinese Hunter Biden Chinese investments, the China nuclear investment, where he's funding right. a Chinese corp that uh, is later indicted and pleads guilty. The executive pleads guilty of stealing U.S. nuclear secrets. That's another huge story that will be coming down. And uh, a, a third one that I'm really excited about is uh, the investment in a facial recognition firm, Hunter Biden uses Chinese money to invest in a Chinese facial recognition firm that is now being used to target the uh, Uyghur Muslim populations. And uh, it's actually got some very interesting coronavirus uh, surveillance uses right now. So anyway, stay, you know, stay tuned to the viewers and listeners uh, because there's a lot more Biden China coming. We're ready. We can't wait for the next story. That nuclear one is so important. And the Uyghurs, we've been writing a lot about them. I can't wait to see those next two stories. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to stay in China with another one of my great colleagues, Daniel Payne. He's got a really disturbing story today about uh, coronavirus research that the NIH was funding in China just before the pandemic began. We're going to tackle that right after the commercial break. Folks, if you get your wallet stolen or your cell phone or your car, we know what it is. It's old-fashioned theft. It's crime. We know it. Criminals now have a new way to steal our most valuable asset, our homes. Older Americans are most vulnerable to these types of thefts, and that's because they more often own their homes outright. An 88-year-old Florida woman recently discovered that scammers forged her signature, created a fake deed to her home, and then took her property. Those who buy a property from a deed theft scammer often become victims as well. What can you do to protect yourself? It's simple. My good friends at Home Title Lock provide the premier detection technology to protect your home 
and it's titled. The instant they detect an activity or something suspicious, they mobilize to help shut it down. We won't know a thief took us off our title until it's too late. That's why Title Lock jumps into action right away. The titles to all our homes are easily found online. A criminal or renter, even a family member, can simply forge a signature on a home sale form. Then he or she refiles as the new owner and bam, your home is not in your name and all of a sudden debts are being taken out against it. That's why Home Title Lock is my choice. Find out for free when you use my code JUSTNEWS at signup. You'll get a free comprehensive scan of your home's title and 30 days of legendary home title lock protection free. So go to hometitlelock.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's the promo code JUSTNEWS at hometitlelock.com. Go there today. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, my great colleague from justthenews.com, Daniel Payne, joins us. Daniel, welcome to the show. John, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. You've got so many great stories over the last week, but there's one I want to really zero in because I know you spent a lot of time working on it, and it involves a State Department memo from uh, the uh, 2018 timeframe where the State Department is talking about efforts to encourage uh, coronavirus research inside China and specifically in the city of Wuhan at the Wuhan Institute. Could you talk a little bit about what you learned about that research and its proximity and timing to the outbreak of the pandemic? Yeah, so what we found was that uh, the State Department in 2018, at the very least, um, was interested in pursuing coronavirus research in China and was specifically concerned about the possibility of future outbreaks of those particular types of viruses there. Um, And it turns out that the federal government, via the National Institutes of Health, was issuing grants over a period of several years up to 2019 that was funding uh, bat-based coronavirus research in China. And one of the sub-awardees of that grant was the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, most people at this point probably know that according to the Chinese government, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic began in Wuhan, and they claim it began at a wet market in the area, one of those markets that uh, sells all number of uh, exotic animals, and they theorize that a virus inside one of those animals for sale jumps to human transmission within that market. It so turns out that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is just several miles from where the pandemic allegedly broke out, and as we now know, the NIH was funding research into coronaviruses there, uh, presumably right around the same time that the pandemic began. So the uh, the, the the lineup of, of timing there is is very suspect and, and concerning to say the least. And and uh, the idea that the United States would be you know looking for coronavirus research in China is not surprising because that's where the last two coronaviruses sort of emerged from, right? So uh, they they had a reason to be doing it, but. Talk about the State Department and the consulate in Wuhan, any concerns that they may have expressed in these memos about the safety procedures or skill sets of those at the Wuhan Institute. Yeah, so, so going back to, to 2018 and, and, and moving forward from there, uh, you know, the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was um, was one of the first uh, level P4 labs in China, I believe. That means it had a, a very high level of uh, ability to, to research and, and deal with viruses. Um, but uh, uh, State Department officials, upon reviewing that lab, were concerned that safety procedures were lax, that they lacked the necessary number of staffers to, to ensure a smoothly running and safe lab, 
you know, as, as long as two years ago, possibly longer, there were there were serious concerns that that the the you know necessary high risk security protocols needed to to contain viruses in this type of lab were not being followed, uh, and the fact that that after those concerns were were lodged with U.S. officials and with Chinese officials that this, uh, you know, a, a pandemic broke out, you know, really just almost a few blocks from where this place is, um, is, is uh, you know, possibly indicative that, uh, that there may have been some sort of uh, failure there. Yeah, that's really been the, the question, right? Nobody that I know of in the intelligence community thinks that the Chinese intentionally released the virus. There's no suggest, suggestion it was man-made and specifically let out to, to create an attack. But one scenario not proven, but certainly being investigated on the record, many people have said this, is that at one of these research facilities that uh, a virus that they were studying may have escaped on someone's clothing or someone may have gotten sick from it. Now, the Chinese don't think that's the scenario. Who doesn't think that's the scenario? But clearly the U.S. intelligence community is concerned about it. What makes this story so interesting is the mindset of the bureaucracy, right, which is there's an expression of concern hey, this is the highest level of uh, pathogen research that can be done. This lab doesn't look like it's up to snuff yet. Uh, there's a question about manpower. Do they have enough manpower for it? Do they have the right safety procedures? And after someone expresses a concern, laissez-faire, they just go back to, to uh, basically, if I read the story correctly, just go back to, you know, continue to do this research. Is that is that sort of the, the public concern that we should be focused on here, the idea that, they would let the research just continue to go on without any any heeding of these warnings about the, the state of the lab. Well, yeah, I, I think at the very least, it's an incredibly valid question just because the, if it happened once, theoretically, then there's no reason it can't happen again. And we certainly know that the Chinese government uh, is intensely secretive. Uh, and, and we know that they worked to cover up the extent of the pandemic as it began uh, in November and throughout December, they they were not accurately reporting. Uh, you know that, that was that was concluded by U.S. officials that uh, that there was a, a significant amount of cover up going on there. So, um, like you said, there's you know there there's uh, a lot of folks who who do believe that it's it's possible that an accidental containment breach, uh, you know, started this pandemic, and uh, and China has denied that. What is needed is is some international oversight and investigation, likely to to determine whether or not this did originate originate in a market uh, just from a, a a jump from a wild animal, or if it if it resulted from an accidental containment breach at this this uh, allegedly high security virology lab. Now you you reached out several times to NIH and they didn't seem to have much concern about the idea that they were funding a lab that the State Department didn't think was up to snuff. Is that that a fair assessment of sort of the, the 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 statements that the NIH gave you? Yeah, they seemed confident that the that the research they were funding was safe. They didn't seem to express any concerns about the possibility that the lab was, uh, you know, a, a a risk to to an outbreak of any kind. Um, you know, they um they actually discontinued the federal government discontinued those grants in um in. Uh, I believe uh, April it was upon President Trump's orders, and then actually reinstated them in July. So there were concerns wow. uh, earlier in the year that that could have uh, that that sort of funding could have been uh, uh, going towards something risky. And um, I guess upon review, they determined it wasn't. But of course, uh, these unanswered questions still remain. It sounds like we got some more work to do to dig into what caused that April and July decisions to occur. But uh, this is a sort of reporting we do every day at Justin News. I'm really proud of the work you did. It's even-handed, level-handed, 
no conspiracy theories, just looking at just how our government dealt with this level four lab and the concerns being expressed. Um, what's to come on the coronavirus front? Dan, you're working on lots of great stories and you've done a lot of important research uh, over the last six months in helping bring perspective and, and calmness to a lot of the hysterical reporting. What do you think are the, the next big stories that we should be watching for in the coronavirus uh, watch? Well, uh, one thing that, that really is, is not getting a whole lot of press, although you think it would, is that um, we're really in a, in a, a sustained period of, of decline in daily new cases. You know, that, that's been one of the major met- metrics by which we, um, we've measured this pandemic is, is how many cases are we recording on a daily basis? You know, is it right. 10,000? Is it 20,000? Is it 50,000? And uh, most of the data you look at indicates that, uh, that the, the number of daily new cases in this kind of second uh, uh, wave of, of infections that we had in this country over the summer actually peaked in about mid-July and have been on a very consistent, sustained downward decline since then. Um, now, of course, there's, there's uh, you know, uh, the chance that they could begin going up again, particularly in the fall, as people keep spending more time indoors uh, as they coincide with flu season. But right now, uh, and for the past about month and a half, maybe a little more, the numbers have actually been very encouraging. So if, if those continue the trend they're on, uh, you know, the U.S. could be looking at itself, uh, looking at being in, you know, a, a much more uh, uh, advantageous position as we go into the fall. Well, we sure could use that good news. I know this coronavirus has worn everybody down, just all of the measures that we've had to abide by. But uh, let's hope that trend line continues. Uh, Daniel, can't thank you enough for all your great reporting. I think when people hear you on this podcast, they know how lucky we are to have you at Just to Do doing the work you're doing. And uh, let's try to get you back on soon. People care about this coronavirus, and your, your reporting has been really on the cutting edge. So we'll try to bring you back soon. Well, thanks, John. I'm always good to be here. Glad to, glad to be here. All right, folks, we're going to come uh, go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, one more of my colleagues, Christine Dolan, here to talk about a big story she broke earlier this week. We'll be right back at these commercial messages. Folks, Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, plus veggie, and so much more. And there's even more to enjoy with over 55 nutritional packed add-ons that help make your weekly meal planning even more delicious and easy. What are you waiting for? Get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. If you're like me and have a busy schedule that the last thing you want to worry about is what to eat or having to go to the grocery store, Factor makes it easy. As they are flexible to your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Plus, Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, usually in just two minutes. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Head to factormeals.com slash justnews50 and use the promo code justnews50 to get 50% off. That's the code justnews50 at factormeals.com. One more time, factormeals.com slash justnews50. Use the justnews50 code and you will get 50% off your first order. All right, folks, welcome back uh, from the commercial break. This is our last segment, and we've saved the best for last. We've got Christine Dolan here. She's done some fantastic reporting this week on Preet Bahara, the former chief federal prosecutor for Manhattan, a man many people believe might be the next attorney general if Joe Biden were to win the election in November. 
and Christine dug into one of the very last cases that Preet Bharara, uh dealt with, and it has a lot of problems with leaking and ethics and actually some of the issues that we saw in the Russia case. Christine, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on. So uh, let's start off, uh, just help people who don't haven't heard the name Preet Bharara. Uh, chief federal prosecutor in Manhattan, which is one of the big jobs in the Justice Department, and a guy who on Twitter and his lectures is a big proponent of uh, legal ethics, correct? He, he, he positions himself as a legal ethicist, correct? Yes, he does. And and he has, I mean, he's, he has a long history as a prosecutor. He was in New York. He served uh, under two different administrations before he was then, um, you know, stayed on for what a year in the Trump administration. So, you know, he's, he's been around for a long period of time, but um, he has always thought of himself as being, you know, the, the justice, the judicial system is very, it's a moralistic entity. And uh, since he was fired by President Trump in March um, of 2017, he has now done a podcast. He's teaching on ethics at um, NYU Law School, and he right. has now come out totally against Trump. But the most interesting thing about his career is that when he became um, the, the U.S. attorney, and he was there for a long period of time, uh, in Southern District of New York, he wanted to develop. Um, go, he wanted to develop a whole program of using wiretaps, like they do in drugs uh, and and organized crime cases, to go after inside trading. And he got a name for himself for taking on inside trading for a number of people in New York uh, and outside of New York, but with, with some New York jurisdiction, obviously. And he he took it to another level. And he had a, a FBI agent who headed up that program. He not only um, let him, cut him loose, he, there were a number of cases that were challenged. There were a number of people who were named uh, in newspaper articles who were never charged but lost their jobs. So by the time of around 2014, when there were leaks in the paper mentioning um, Billy Walters' insider trading case, with, uh, you know, two other people, all of a sudden it became, it took two years later for Billy Walters to be indicted for insider trading, but there had been a lot of controversy about past insider trading cases. But Billy Walters' cases where Preet Bharara's office was caught, it was exposed. Um, after he, Billy was indicted in, I think it was May of 2016, uh, by the end of 2016, Billy Walters' attorneys were, in fact, saying at the time to the judge, we think that there has been some grand jury leaks. Preet Bahara's office said, no, there wasn't. The judge ordered a preliminary evidentiary hearing. They actually um, had one. And then on the eve of the hearing was when Preet Bahar, uh, with his signature on the piece of paper, admitted to the judge that they could not rebut any of the allegations of a grand jury leaks. And that's, yeah. that is his record. And that's astounding because you rarely have a federal prosecutor's office admit to the fact that she may have been leaking grand jury leaks. But more importantly, yeah. 
in the documents that they submitted to the court were exchanges of emails among the FBI office and the prosecutor's office, which proved that, in fact, the they, these guys, while denying that the leaks were happening in 2016, that, in fact, they all knew about it in 2014. And that included Preet Bahara, who had his own email. So let's, let me unpack a little bit of this. Let's go uh, slow down just a little bit and uh, introduce the character. So Billy Walters is sort of a larger-than-life businessman, uh, uh, one of the great uh, faces of the Las Vegas gambling scene for a long time. He's since left that, but he's accused, along with Phil Mickelson and others, of some sort of an insider uh, trading scheme. He gets charged. Preet Bahara has built this insider trading uh, portfolio as sort of the marquee of his office. And uh, in 2014, there are leaks in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, correct? Those are the two newspapers that had the big leaks, right? Those are the two newspapers. And when I went back and examined the other cases where there were some leak uh, controversy, these were the same group of reporters at those two newspapers. So these leaks occur in 2014, long before when the case is just getting started, uh, they smear up and dirty up the alleged defendants. It turns out Mickelson never gets charged. The great golfer, uh, Billy Walters, does get charged. Uh, And they get to the point where it's uh, getting towards trial. And Billy Walters cries foul and said, listen, you tried me in the press already. And Preet Bahara says, no, we didn't. You're on a fishing expedition. That was the word they used, like fishing expedition, right? Yes, that was. Fishing expedition. what, what you found and what I think made your story so powerful uh, yesterday was the fact that you have emails from Preet Bahara himself writing to the head of the FBI office in New York saying, what are we going to do about these leaks? Which means he knew about the leaks that he was trying to pretend to the court. They didn't know about that was a fishing expedition. But you, you, you knew, you documented that Preet Bahara and all of the top uh, SDNY prosecutors and FBI knew there were leaks going on and they, they misled the court, right? They misled the court, and not only that, but when the the focus was on uh, when uh, Preet's office submitted that document to the court and included the evidence of the with the emails, they focused just on one FBI agent, David Chavez. But as this roller coasted through the courts, it became very obvious to many of these judges not just Judge Castle, who was the presiding trial judge, but to the appeals court judges who said that, in fact, what Chavez did was more egregious than what Walters was found to to have done. Walters' case went forward. He was convicted, but they appealed that ruling, uh, that conviction. And when it got up to the appeals court, the judges were, were astounded. By, by what they found. And they also said at the time that it should have gone to a full, full evidentiary hearing because it could have developed into knowing more about the scope of how they use the wiretaps and grand jury leaks in other cases. So Billy's case focused on just him, but the evidence had the court allowed to have the full evidentiary hearing could have found the full practice when Preet was running the office in the Southern District and David Chavez, who was the FBI um, agent who was in charge of the wiretaps and also found to have met with Wall Street Journal and New York Times journalists over the course of years. Uh, And the judges cited that it was a multi-year leaks of grand jury information. Had it gone forward, it very, very possibly could have completely exposed how Preet allowed 
these these uh, wiretaps to be compromised because they actually set it up by leaking information to the journalists, having them publish information into the newspapers, some of it wrong, by the way. And then they would have what they call tickle the wire, which means that the, the cops and the law enforcement would listen in on conversations among those who are, in fact, targeted by that office. So it's it's a game because um, – it's grand jury leaks. There's no doubt about it. But it's grand jury leaks for the benefit of the prosecutors when they're trying to target people. That that is the real question here. And it, it, the the Justice Department managed to cut this off before it delved too deep. But we're gonna we're gonna file some new FOIAs uh, and find out how many times during the uh, all of the insider trading cases that the FBI and Preet Bharara's office uh, met with media, talked with media, had conversations with news media. Uh, and try to show whether this was a systemic pattern. Because the idea here is, or the concern is, it appears from what you wrote, is that they were dirtying up these suspects in the media so that they could uh, have a better chance of convicting them in the court of law. So they were using the leaks in the court of public opinion as sort of the first weapon. Sounds a lot like the Russia collusion case, right, where all of the leaking was going on, uh, even in the absence of evidence of wrongdoing with the president. Christine, we only got a minute left. I want to ask you, uh, one of the most important uh, elements of this is that the Biden is looking or is rumored to be looking at Preet Bharara as an attorney general. Based on what you saw of his conduct in this case, what sort of confirmation hearing might Preet Bharara get if uh, if people have an opportunity to look at this evidence? I think it raises a lot of questions, not just on ethics, but whether or not he's fit to be in a law enforcement position in government ever again. Because you cannot deny, he cannot deny that he did not know anything about it. He, after he left office, he gave a lecture that we that we were able to get some information about, right. where he he deflected that he would he was not his office was not found to be you know in a compromising position. They, his office didn't do anything wrong. Well, the truth of the matter is, in the appeals court. The judge, the judge in the concurrent opinion actually said the preliminary, the, the evidentiary hearing should have gone farther because it would have possibly exposed the pattern of conduct in his office. So I think that, um, you know, th there's a lot of questions to be had and there probably be some leaks about that, because the one thing that the Wall Street Journal and New York Times cannot deny is they actually were used by his office, yeah. by the FBI, to leak information about insider trading cases that were um, prolific underneath Preet tenure as uh, U.S. Attorney for just, the Southern District of New York. Just like the New York Times got used to build the Russia collusion uh, story. So here's the big question I know all of our listeners are going to want to ask. Did anyone get punished? I mean, they admit to leaking. Did anyone get any punishment here? Uh, there was to be there was a ref, uh, criminal referral to the Justice Department's uh, Public Integrity Inspector General's office. The judge uh, who ordered it, who said he was shocked in, in, during the course of the hearing, um, ordered the FBI to come back and to uh, into you know brief him about it. So far, right. no one has in fact been held accountable. Not even David Chavez, who in fact mm -hmm. was named by Preet's office in the documentation that went before the court. Um, yep. So no, no one's been held accountable. And, Everybody and Mr. Chavez, the agent, has retired, right? With his benefits, he's retired. Absolutely, and he, and he's also on the speaking bureau's circuit talking about ethics, and you know, he's an expert in wiretaps, <laughs> which is ironic wow. because they both that? you know advertise themselves as um, being ethical former law enforcement. Yeah. Well, uh, this pattern of uh, 
Justice Department, FBI officials being caught doing wrong things and never getting prosecuted is why so many people fear we have this dual justice system, uh, one system for all the regular people like you and I, and one for the Department of Justice, where apparently you can get away with a lot of wrongdoing. Well, Christine, I can't thank you enough. This is a really important story. We hope you stay on it. Let's get these new FOIAs filed because I think there's more leaks to be discovered. Uh, more weaponization of law enforcement to be discovered in the pre-Bahara era. We'll have you back on soon, Christine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John, very much. All right, folks, we'll be back in 30 seconds to wrap things up. All right, folks, that wraps it up. I'm so glad that my colleagues could join me today from Just the News. Uh, You get a sense of their neutral, honest reporting, uh, the efforts that they put into it, the facts that they've gathered, the transparency that they want you to have. We don't want you to trust us and take our word for our stories. We want you to trust and verify yourself by going in and being able to see all the documents, all the announcements, all the video, all the audio that we have that helped um, us write the story that we did and produce the story that we did. And I think today you got to hear from three of the reporters. You get a sense of their professionalism, their neutrality, their dedication to facts and informing the American people about stories that other news media, well, might not be interested in telling you about. All right. We're going to be back tomorrow with our regularly scheduled program on Thursday. In the meantime, check out justthenews.com. We always have breaking news, important developments. If you have uh, time. Check it out, and uh, tomorrow we'll be back on air with another podcast, another edition of John Solomon Reports. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it, with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 right now.